0: You're listening to a North Valley Community Church podcast. For more information and resources, visit us online at northvalleychurch.org.
1: All right. Well, man, was that not good? That was a good worship time. Let's celebrate Christ. Amen. Amen. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and open it up. We're in James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12. This morning's message is about practicing patience in the midst of suffering. So let's do this. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and stand for the reading of God's Word. and We're going to get right into it, and we'll get straight to work. Amen? All right, here we go. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 12 says this. It says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. and Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. And you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful, But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, and let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall into condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Heavenly Father, work now. We love you, Jesus. We uphold the name of Christ. And we invite you, Jesus, to empower us through your spirit, empower us through your word, change our hearts, God, more and more to conform to the image of Christ. We pray this, God, because we need this. We need to learn how to walk with patience in the midst of hard times. We need this. And God, we need it in every area of our life. And so this morning, we just invite you in faith and say, God, take more precedence upon my priorities and take more occupancy in the heart of my house and everything that I have, God. We pray, God, for the blessing of Christ upon our hearts and homes. In the name of Jesus, everybody said, amen. Man, isn't it wonderful how we can make a movie theater, a church, Praise Jesus, man. That's wonderful. Seven common trials that you guys are facing and I face, and this is what I taught at the very beginning in the book of James, and we're nearing the end. Next week is I'll finish up the book of James, and this morning I'm going to talk to you about practicing patience in this. And James started his epistle, writing to the Christians that are spread out through Roman Empire that are facing persecutions. And these were the trials that they were going through. These are the trials that you and I go through. Trials in relationships, marriage, remarriage, and dating. Trials in parenting. we got kids, step kids, adopted kids, foster kids. Trials in finances. What do we spend? How do we save? How do we give? How do we pay off debt? Trials of faith. Some of you are here this morning because there's a trial of faith in your life and you're here because you're looking for Christ. Good news, Christ is present. Trials of faith, trials of fear, trials of God, are you really there? Some of you are facing trials of health. Just yesterday, I thought about it and prayed about it. I just received word that my father has cancer. I love him tremendously. He's gonna, we were gonna, go back to Arkansas and have all these wonderful times. And instead we show up and the next day he's going in to get surgery. He's got prostate cancer. And I asked the Lord is, and my dad hadn't even told me yet. He hadn't even talked to me. So that's how it works in my family. Probably like yours, when things go wrong, it was just kind of a season of quietness. And uh, my dad trusts the Lord, loves the Lord. And I don't know what's going to happen. But I sat down and I prayed this morning and I felt like God said, Ryan, let's do this. I'm your father and I'll walk with you. If you lose your dad, you know I'm still here. And the test of your faith and my faith is how will you respond when you face a trial? And what James wants to know is, do you have a genuine saving faith or is your faith just social? And a saving faith will walk in the midst of a trial and say, God, even though I don't understand, you're good. He's a good, good father. The character and the nature of God is, ought to be your number one aim and pursuit of your Christian life is to know the risen Christ, the Lord. This morning I'm praying and I feel and sense the actual presence of Christ. And I said to myself, this is exactly why I'm a Christian. Because there is a Christ who is risen and alive. And I get to meet him and spend time with him. And then proclaim him. This morning, you guys are facing trials in hell. You're facing trials at work and trials in school. You got all sorts of trials going on in your life. And the question comes is, how are you going to live in the midst of trial? How do you practice patience in the middle of suffering? And James answers that question. It gives us seven exhortations on how we can persevere and be patient. Number one, I call this farm the faith in verses seven through eight. Farming the faith is a phrase that I've created looking at scripture and principles. Farming the faith is what I call it's the art of spiritual growth. It's knowing what you need to work on in your Christian life and what you need to wait on. In the Christian life, James uses the illustration of a farmer. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits. Let's say that together. See how the farmer waits. Number one, if you're going to learn how to pr- be patient in the midst of trials and suffering, you need to farm the faith. Let me give you a few farm the faith moments in the first few months of my wife and I moving to Phoenix. Phoenix. I remember crossing the state line, uh, coming, coming across I guess I-40 it was, and then you, you kind of you're driving through nowhereville, it feels like. And then all of a sudden you come out on these beautiful uh, stretches of mountains, and we were coming from uh, the east side of, of I-40 and coming west. And I remember I pulled off at a little truck stop and I was driving the big U-Haul and I'm cranking like some Chris Tomlin or something. I'm worshiping the Lord all by myself and my family's behind me. And I'm like, we got to pull over and give praise to God that this is the land he's called us to. I was feeling like an old school Israelite. Okay. I'm like, we need to set up some rocks or stones or do something. So we pull over And I get this dirt and I put it and I hold it in our hands. And my wife's like, what are you doing? This is kind of weird. That's not holy dirt. And I'm like, it is today, baby. (laughs) And so we circle in a circle and, and, you know, we don't even have Maya yet. We hadn't even met little Maya, the little girl we're going to adopt two years later. And I got Sam and Riley right beside me. And I said, Sam, hold this dirt in your hand. This is the land God has called us to. That's why we gave up everything in Arkansas. That's why we came out here. This is the land, the very physical land that God chose to bring you, me, your mom to this place. Because he has a plan. We'll preach the gospel. People will get saved. There will be a church established. This is the ground in which he's called us to. And now they're getting a little fired up, you know? Okay, daddy, preach on. And so I give them the dirt and we start holding the dirt and they're like, this is the land, Lord, this is the land. And I look around, I'm like, this is getting kind of spooky. So I'm like, all right, get the dirt, put it in a glass jar, put it in a plastic jar, whatever. We get in the car, we drive a little further, pull over at a truck stop again because the kids got to go pee-pee every few minutes. You know, when are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? When are we going to get there? It's like, you know, I don't know. We'll get there. When we get there, we'll get there. So we stop, and I look, and there's no beautiful holy sand in the little cup. I'm like, where's the the holy dirt? And Ryan's like, oh, I poured that out the window a long time ago, Daddy. (laughs) Patience, the Lord says, Ryan, hey, I'm going to farm the faith in your life. Trust me. A little bit later, when we got to Phoenix, we unloaded the U-Haul. It's like 190 degrees outside. And I unloaded an entire U-Haul all by myself. We didn't know anybody in Phoenix when we first got here. Unloaded that thing. I sweat droplets of blood. This is what James says. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient means long-tempered. It means long-fused. James mentions it three times in four verses. If he repeats it, it's important. Why is it important? It's a sign of your saving faith, not a social faith. If you are patient, it's a sign of the fruit of the Spirit working upon your life, that there's a manifestation, a holy sealing and filling of the presence of Christ upon your life that enables you to endure all your pain, all your suffering, because it's not you at work in you, it's Christ at work in you. Patience is important because it's the sign, it's the symbol you wear a wedding ring to show you're a Christian. Well, if you had spiritual lenses, patience is the sign that you're a Christian. Because when hard times hits, everybody wants to know, do they still have faith? Where is their God now? Patience is important. It's a standard for those who want to live holy. It produces character. Patience promotes wisdom. When you're patient and you don't fly off the handle in you're impatience, there's this thing that occurs It's called the Holy Spirit's working upon you, and you get wisdom to work out of. But when you're impatient, you're foolish. James calls us to be patient. Patience preserves relationships. How many impatient people do you know that have burned bridges rather than built bridges because they're impatient? Patience is crucial. James says it's this coming of the Lord. We've got to be patient. He says, brothers, he's calling, he's he's loving them. He's speaking to the church. He says, until the coming of the Lord. They believed that Jesus was really coming back. There is no good Christian theology that has an absence of the uh, hope and awaiting of Jesus Christ. It says the coming of the Lord, that's an eschatological term. It means that the end is coming, that God's arrival will happen on earth earth, that his power and presence and bodily form will appear. And the next big event on God's calendar is Jesus' return. On God's timetable, that's the next event. That idea appears 500 plus times in the Bible. It'll be a dramatic, unmistakable event, like a flash of lightning across the sky, according to Matthew 24. Jesus will return. Look what he says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. The farmer would have been a small Palestinian farmer, had a small plot of land that was provided for their family, and extended family. The farmer would have needed to learn how to work the ground, work on planting seeds and wait for the fruit. You've seen that commercial? It's like a Yo Play commercial, a yogurt commercial, and their farmers are out there in the field, and they're going to get these peaches off the tree, and the girl farmer's standing down on the ground, and the guy farmer's standing on the ladder, and they're waiting for the fruit to be ripe, and she yells, and he's wanting to grab it. He's trying to grab the fruit, and she says, not yet, not yet, not yet, and then she goes, grab that peach. Okay, none of y'all seen it. Yeah. So at my house, my little Maya always walks around and she goes, "Not yet. Not yet." <laughs> you guys got to watch that commercial. <laughs> There's some things in life you need to work on. There's some things in life you need to wait on. Farm the faith. You need to work on patience in your marriage. You need to work on patience in your parenting. You need to work on being a godly single man or woman and be patient. But then yet there's this side of the spiritual life that as a farmer, you need to farm the faith. You need to wait on God. There's nothing you can do. You can't make your husband or your wife mature in their faith with your words or your actions. You need to wait on God. In your parenting, you want that kid to respond? You want that kid to do right? Turn them loose. Wait on God to change them. Are there things you need to work on? Absolutely. But a good farmer who farms the faith says, I figured out what it means to work on things in my life, and I figured out the areas. I just wait on God. James gives us that illustration so that we'll know how to farm the faith. He says, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. These early rains would have been in the fall season. And the late rains, which were incredible, there's three quarters of the rain would happen in the very last part of the rainy season, right before harvest. So the farmer, by nature, is an anxious person waiting on, God, would you please send the rain? And for these little poor peasant farmers, it's the difference between life and death. James says, be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. He says establish. It means to strengthen yourself. That's something that you need to work on. Not being tossed around by every wave of the sea. James said that earlier. But you need to establish your heart be strong. You go, I don't have strength. Good. God does. He's got more than you can even imagine. He is omniscient, all-knowing. He is omnipotent. means all-powerful. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord. Coming of the Lord. This is Jesus's return. In Acts 1, the disciples witnessed that Jesus ascended into heaven and then descended to meet with them. And all of a sudden, after he gives his command and his power and his presence falls upon the disciples, after his resurrection, ascension, and then he comes and appears to them more than 500. And this is why Jesus reigns above every other prophet or priest or every other God wannabe, because he actually shows up, actually verifies, says, Thomas, here's the holes in my hands. And so we get this record of Jesus and all the miracles and all the testimony and all the power. Jesus is Lord. In the book of Acts, it says that Jesus then ascended back into heaven like on a cloud. And the disciples are just stuck staring like, holy smokes, there he goes. And they're just watching. And he had already told them like, you need to go, go preach my gospel. And they're just like this. They're all just staring. All right, some of them, Peter's probably like, he's coming back soon, man. That was the vibe during the early church. He's coming back soon. And in every generation, there needs to be this anticipation. Christ is coming. He'll right every wrong. He'll restore. He'll redeem. And in every generation, that's the hope. Christ power his presence will come back to earth and renew just like it was in the garden of eden but even better angels walk up what are you guys doing the disciples are like man we're just staring at jesus he's gone and he's like hey he's gonna come back doubting thomas might have been like i doubt it i doubt it Peter's like, shut up, Thomas, shut up. You always doubt. Don't, number two, don't waste your breath. Don't waste your breath. Verse nine, do not grumble against one another. That means gripe or complain. Some of you are a bunch of grumblers. You complain all the time. That does not help your problem, that hurts your problem. We have a lot of gripers and complainers sometimes in my little household. And they're predominantly little. But you know, big people can act like little kids too and gripe and complain about everything. James says, don't waste your breath. Why? He says, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. What is this judgment? Judgment. This is actually a judgment for believers. It's not a judgment in the sense of did you? Or is it's not a judgment about sin or whether you can get into heaven or not. It's actually a judgment about a reward ceremony for every believer. That one day you'll face Jesus face to face. All you who have professed Jesus Christ as Lord, there's a judgment day. It's called the Bema Seat of Christ. It's written about in 1 Corinthians. John Piper wrote a book about it called Don't Waste Your Life. I remember when I picked up a copy of that book, I was praying, God, do I go into the business world or do I just become like a preacher? And I love business because when I was in high school, man, I had all sorts of fraudulent businesses, I told somebody the other day, they were bragging on somebody in our church, and I said, let me just tell you something, okay? God's grace is good. He can take skills that you have and redeem them and restore them and make them for his holy purposes. See, I was a drug dealer at one time. I was selling to the Crips, the Bloods, and the KKK. All three of them. No wonder I had death threats at my house on a regular basis. My mom and dad would cry over these threats. Meanwhile, I was raking in some cash. Don't worry, God chastised me, and I came to repentance and gave all that stuff up. But anyway, I don't even know where I was, Lord. I have ADD, okay? Oh, it's a reward ceremony. That's where we are judgment seat. Every believer, you're going to meet Jesus. He's going to give you rewards based on how good you've lived. It's not about the sin. Let me tell you good news. He took care of sin and judged it at the cross. Everything's been paid for, for all your sin, all your screwing up from your past, your present, and your future. All that sin's dealt with on the cross. And the whole thing over your life is grace and mercy. And then you'll meet Jesus as a Christian, and he's going to talk about all the wonderful things you've done. And some of you are going to be walking out of there loaded like, you got everything. You're going to be blessed in incredible ways because he's worked upon your life and he's blessed it for all the good works. And that's exactly what James is talking about right there. Number three, you need to learn by godly examples. You need to learn by godly example. He says, as an example, in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets. James is just reeling for illustrations. Hey, you need to be patient, guys. Here's a farmer. A farmer works the soil, works on the the planting seeds, and then he waits on it. And then he turns around and says, here's the prophets. Take the prophets, for example. They know suffering. They know how to be patient. The prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord, these are God's spokesmen throughout every generation. In the Old Testament, these guys rose up like Moses. He had to learn how to be patient when he had a bunch of complainers and gripers. David had to learn how to be patient when he was hunted by King Saul like a dog hunts a bird or Elijah had to be patient when he faced the hostility of King Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Or Jeremiah, the prophet, who endured opposition, and he was called the weeping prophet. Or Ezekiel, who endured death, the death of his wife in the midst of his ministry. He lost his loved one. Or Daniel, who was torn from his home, his brothers, his sisters, his dad and his mom, and tossed into the lion's den. Or Hosea, who endured a heartbreaking marriage. Or Amos, who faced lies of gossip and slander and being scorned. Or John the Baptist, who was beheaded for preaching the gospel. Or Jesus Christ, who was crucified for speaking about his kingdom to come. I want to share with you an interview that I recently did by probably one of the most persecuted Christians on the planet Earth in the 21st century. I want to give you an overview of what suffering looks like and this video that we put together, it is raw. It is not very well edited. We are not showing it publicly because we pulled it together really quick. I had the opportunity and the privilege to interview Pastor Saeed, and uh, he's from Iran. And so I was, uh, had this opportunity while I was in Phoenix recently, a gal by the name of Lisa Lejeur. She uh, hosts a women's Bible study, and she invited, she'd been praying for Saeed for years and years, and... God miraculously, this man was imprisoned for his faith, sentenced to eight years in prison. Uh, Lisa uh, Leger is a friend of mine. Her husband, Rob, right there, serves as a mentor to me. Uh, they're a wonderful, godly couple. Um, they, they are uh, kind of have a ministry where they uh, do women's Bible study, and Rob just supports and encourages his wife. And then next year, we're doing that women's Bible study here at North Valley this fall. And Lisa's gonna be uh, helping lead that up. And we're gonna be looking at the life of David and all the ups and the downs. And so I was invited to pray for Pastor Saeed uh, along with many other church pastors from CCV to uh, Community Church of Joy to Trinity Church to Hope Church and just pray for God's uh, help and assistance upon this man who has obviously been used by the Lord but is undergoing tremendous suffering even now. And so watch this video, check this out. How did you experience joy in the middle of your pain?
0: You know, actually, the first came when, when I was like, okay, now I'm there, you know, I need to pray. And it has been sometimes, I think you experience as a pastor, that it's sometimes that you pray and pray and nothing changed. You pray and the, the pain's still there. So the only way is just, like, focusing on the God's promises and going back to Bible and just find that what really God is doing into your real life and how you can just change that pain to the joy and rejoice in the Lord. For me, it was when I just start praying and changing my praying to thanksgiving the Lord and worshiping Him. Sometimes when we just praying to some subject, we are just kind of like clinging to that one, and when until it doesn't remove, we still have that pain. But sometimes God wants us to just go one step forward and just start thanks, giving thanks and thanksgiving, everything, the situation that you are in it because of your pain and when you find it out that your pain is just because of Christ and because of his kingdom so you need to get the like kind of like a mindset of the eternal life because something never changed probably in your life on the earth but when you when you put all of your you know attention and focus on what thing is really happening in the heaven as Job has So, from your perspective, how important is suffering
1: for Christian spiritual growth?
0: Uh, I can tell you, maybe, you know, actually surprise you, I can tell you suffering is a blessing. It's a blessing. You know, so many people, they don't, they think if they have like a safe life, easy life, they are blessed. Which maybe sometimes is true, you know, but sometimes if you don't have this suffering, you're going to easily go to sleep. You know, I see that so many times persecution and suffering help the churches to grow and increase and be awakened for God's sake. So I called sometimes suffering is a blessing.
1: Number four, Bible teaches that you are to consider your suffering as a blessing. Look what it says in verse 11. James says, behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. Here's the point. You need to realize that God's blessing doesn't come on those who do great things. Rather, God's blessing comes for those who endure great things. Because God gets the glory if it's not about you. So when you're weak, Paul says, God's strong. When you're suffering, Christ is present. Christ can help you. So in the middle of your pain, you can receive patience and power because you're in an incredible place and position of dependence. James teaches us that we need to be, consider all those who have suffered and when we ourselves are are suffering, that there's a blessing. Jesus started in the greatest sermon ever. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, for theirs is the kingdom. When you go through a hard time, that hard time is intended to draw you closer to God so that in the midst of your trial, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, the very power and presence of Christ will be there. God doesn't work through people who don't need them, who don't want them. When you surrender yourself and say, I am desperate, I am hungry, I am hurting, I can't do this on my own, that's when you, by God's grace, are inviting the Holy Spirit to say, well, guess what? My name is Helper. That's what I do. And the Helper comes and helps. Saeed helped me understand that suffering does two things. Number one, it brings internal blessing. When you're going through persecution, hardship, suffering, whatever's going on in your life, really, really difficult, there's an internal blessing that happens. Because it provides you the opportunity for you to evaluate your own personal life and go, God, I need help. Change me on the inside. Saeed's faith grew stronger in prison. Something internally, powerfully worked through him. And every suffering and hardship I've ever gone through, if I depend on the Lord, something wells up inside of me, supernatural, not normal, not from Ryan, but from God, and gets me through what I'm going through. There's a second blessing, it's an external blessing. When suffering hits the church and Christians around the world, the genuine Christians, the Christians that don't have a social faith but a saving faith, here's what happens. Millions of Christian will be mobilized for prayer. Thousands of churches will be planted. Thousands of people or millions of people will come to faith in Christ. Every time in redemptive history, when we look upon persecution and suffering, the genuine church, the genuine believers in Christ, they flourish. Because in the moment of their desperation, Christ shows up. Not because he doesn't want to other times, but because that's when he's called upon the most and the loudest. So in the moment of your affliction, call upon the Lord, and you will be blessed. Number five, I'd encourage you to do this is ask God, why? Why am I going through persecution, God? Why am I going through a trial? Why, God? And you say to me, Man, Ryan, I don't know if I would do that or not. It seems a bit abrupt. God's not afraid of you, He's not afraid of your questions. Why would he invite Thomas to come and look at his hands when Thomas was doubting? He didn't scoff Thomas. He didn't yell at Thomas. He didn't scold Thomas. He didn't make fun of Thomas. He said, come here, Thomas. You don't believe. I'll show you. We serve a merciful and a compassionate God. His mercies are new every day. His compassion is limitless. So you can ask why. Look what he says in verse 11. James says, hey, you've heard of the steadfastness of Job and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. It's okay to ask questions about the purpose of the Lord. You can say to God, What's the purpose behind my pain, God? What's the significance? in my storm, in my situation? What's the test here in my trial that I'm going through financially, emotionally, relationally, health? What's the test, God? God has purpose, God has a plan. The word purpose in the Greek is telos. It means it's the outcome, it's the goal, it's the end result. In other words, what I'm asking you to do is is ask God, say, God, show me the end result of what you want to do with me in the midst of this hardship. And for Saeed, I asked him, what's getting you through torture? What's getting you through this affliction? And he said, I knew that the purpose was that God was going to build his church, his kingdom." would prevail through my suffering. Job is the example. Look what he says, verse 11. You have heard the steadfastness of Job. James calls us to remember Job. Job was the paragon of patience. He was the supreme example of steadfastness. Job was a godly man who endured unimaginable suffering. Fierce. Brutal attacks from Satan, the loss of children, the loss of wealth, the loss of his physical health, the loss of his reputation, the loss of his friends, the loss of the very presence of God. Job wasn't afraid to ask God, why? Why are you doing this? Four reasons why we see Job, found how he found purpose behind his pain. First, there was the test of faith. God wanted to prove to the world around him that Job's faith was genuine. It was a saving faith, not a social faith. It was the real deal, Hollyfield. You remember him, Evander Hollyfield? <laughs> Look out, James is going to pull a Hollyfield on you. You guys got to lighten up. Okay, number two, you need what we're going to see the purpose behind Job's pain. He's going to show that faith wins over the schemes of sin and Satan. Faith wins. Faith is more powerful than fear. Believe in the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. Believe in the name of Christ, and you will be healed. You will be forgiven. Belief is always more powerful than any burden that you may bear. Thirdly, the purpose behind Job's pain was to strengthen Job's faith. That's an internal blessing. Fourthly, there was a purpose for Job to increase in his blessedness. You're like, what about that blessedness? Job, if you read in Job chapter 42, it says God increased everything to Job twofold. All of his wealth, all of his friends, everything he had, he blessed it twofold. Twofold. Did God have a purpose? Did he have a telos? He did. You've got to ask God, why am I going through this? What are you trying to teach me? I'm afraid to ask God that question concerning my father. I don't know how long he's got to live. Nobody does. I pray that it'll be a simple surgery and we'll get another 10, 15 years out of the old man. He tells me he wants to die in a duck hunting boat. So, when he gets real old and decrepit, I'm going to take him out in the duck hunting boat and just kind of, I won't nudge him over the edge. That would be terrible. <coughs> but he swears to me. One time we were deer hunting and I was just asleep and I couldn't even hear him breathe. And I said, Dad, you awake? And he just laid there and I was like, Dad. And because he told me earlier, he's like, man, I've had some heart pains. So I thought, Lord, this is it. He's going down. I shook him down and he goes, I'm not dead yet. (laughs) So the question is going to be is when you go through your hard time, will you discover the purpose that God has for your life? Watch me. See what happens in mine when I go through really hardship. See how I manage. Let me encourage you. Pray for me. Anybody that wants to speak God's word is going to be assaulted. And I've faced a lot of hardship already just being here. And for anybody that wants to live a godly life, the apostle Paul says, you will be persecuted. And for those that want to open their mouth about Jesus, you will be persecuted even more. Ask God why. God's not afraid of you. God actually has good purposes upon your life. In the middle of your pain, he's there. Number six, go to God. Don't go to other people. Don't go to Oprah. Don't go to Dr. Phil. Go to Jesus, okay? Go to God first. I'm not saying Oprah, Dr. Phil doesn't have anything good to say. I'm just telling you, if you don't go to God, you're going to the wrong place. Verse 11, James reminds us, he says, hey, the Lord is compassionate and merciful, in the NIV, and, and many of those translations, it says, the Lord is full of compassion and merciful. It's the only phrase in the entire New Testament it means that he's like, God is double bowled. Like he's got a huge capacity for compassion and mercy. It's like he's full, like he's just big. When my wife was pregnant with twins, she was full. She was big, she was a little she is a little whoa she was a little petite frame, and she is a little petite frame, and she would come in like hauling a like pushing a boat whoo and my let me translate you know so she was full she was i mean the the word here used in the Greek is double bowed like there's in Leslie, there was double business going on in there. There's, there's two kids. She was hauling 12 plus pounds. Then it turned to like bigger, okay? And my friends, you know, I was like, man, you know, she's really, she, she's on bed rest now. and We just need to chill. And you know, we got to serve her. And let me translate how they responded in Arkansanian language. <laughs> and it's part sane, insane. So they did like, Man, she is swole up. <laughs> you need to put her on her back and do not let her get up. She is swole up like a tick. <laughs> I was like, hey, bud, don't, don't say that to my wife, okay? Just let me talk. The sguero cactus here in Phoenix is Awesome. You've seen a sguaro. What it does is it, it's actually built and designed to endure incredible amounts of shortage of water. And in the monsoons, it will absorb all the water. It'll hold it and it'll expand. It'll be huge, full. Like it's almost going to burst. And because that sguaro is filled up with water, it could make it through the hard times. Let me ask you a question. Are you full, filled up with God's compassion and mercy? You need to be. There's no way you're going to get through the rest of this life without being filled with God's compassion and mercy upon your life. God's compassion falls like rain, Phoenix, when it rains, it's like, we want to run out in the streets and we want to be in the rain, right? And when my kids, when it rains, they run out and they want to play in the mud. So they'll make themselves real muddy. And I'll get them out and I'll say, great, I'm glad you played in the mud, even despite I told you not to. You're really dirty. Go stand in the rain and be washed. See, you're like that kid. You go and you play in the mud. You ruin your clothes. You disobey your family. You disobey your dad, God. And the Lord says, "Come to me, and I'll rain down mercy upon your life and cleanse you. I'll wash you with compassion. I love you. I have more love than you than you have for yourself." That's what the Lord says. James says, "Go to the Lord. You're struggling. Go to the Lord. He is full of compassion and mercy. You, you can't get through what you're going through without him. And if you do, you're a walking zombie on the inside. Go to God for your needs. Be restored by the na- in the name of Christ. Be renewed in the name of Christ and be redeemed in the name of Christ. Number seven, you do this. You keep your word. Verse 12. It says this. It's, it says in verse 12, in essence, just let your yes be your yes and your no be your no. Say what you're gonna do and when you're going through a hard time, it's easy to take shortcuts. It's easy to bail out on God. It's easy to put you as numero uno and God as number two. Keep your word. You say you're gonna live for Christ, live for Christ. You say you're gonna do live your marriage out according to a Christ-centered model. Christ number one, marriage number two, kids number three. Don't do it backwards. That's how most people do it. Kids are first, marriage is second, God's third. Keep your word. You call yourself a Christian? It's hard to keep your word when things go wrong. We tend to doubt God, we compromise our convictions. And James says, Keep your word. Here's what was going on in James's day. Many Jewish Christians had created this complex system of of swearing oaths. There was no written contracts, and so their word was supposed to be their word. And in the South, we say, we shake on a deal, keep your word. We don't even need contracts in the South. You just shake them, look in the eye. That's it. Some of you are going, yeah, you need contracts. I know, okay. But we do it anyway. And then we let the paperwork be second. I did that here in Arizona, and the guy thought I was crazy. I did it on the deal with the land. You're like, oh, Ryan, Lord, help us. I'm like, yeah, I know. That's why we got Jonathan, you know? I'm like, he said, he promised, this is it. And tell like, we need a contract. In James' day, you could swear to God you can swear by God. Yeah, I think popular to, or uh, un, uh, most of us think you can't swear to God. You can't swear to God. You just better deliver. If you swore to God in James' day and you did not fulfill your oath, it would result in divine punishment. I still would never swear to God unless I really, really meant it. Avoid punishment. Here's how the Jewish Christians did it. They said, okay, well, we're not going to swear By God's name, but we'll swear by weaker things like the temple or gold or earth or heaven because we don't want to suffer the consequences if we don't deliver. And that's exactly what they were doing. They started swearing by all sorts of things. Look what it says in verse 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or any other oath. Look what he says James says, Do what you say. Stick to it. Persevere. The pain. He says, let your yes be your yes and your no be your no so that you may not fall under condemnation. Here's what I challenge you to do. Invite Ian and the worship team to come up. I plan on I encourage you to keep your word. Keep your word in your marriage. Keep your word in your faith. Keep your word in your service. Keep your word in your financial commitments. Keep your word in every area of your life. Your reputation hinges upon it. And I pray that you would keep your word and stand strong and be found blameless before Christ. In Jesus' name, let me pray. Lord, thank you, God, for your word. Renew it. Revive us for your holiness, God, in our own personal lives. Thank you for the truth and the testimony of your word Thank you for the examples that you give us through Scripture. We pray, God, that we would call upon your name even in these moments to come as we gather for communion and offering and just singing songs. Fill us with your presence. Fill us with your power. Renew us. In the name of Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen.
0: Thank you for listening. To become a supporter of North Valley Community Church, give online today at northvalleychurch.org.